Tom Canning. You know him best for his excellent writing, arranging, and for his amazing keyboard touches on most of Al Jarreau's music. But the native New Yorker's music career started well before Al, when he performed and recorded with John Clemmer, Freddie King, T-Bone Burnett, and others. But as we all know, it was an unsigned Al Jarreau who hired Canning as his music director in 1974, and the rest is history. You know the tracks, Roof Garden, Breaking Away, Never Given Up, all containing Canning's masterful arranging and performing. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Tom Canning. Hey, Tom, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for reaching out to me. No problem. Yeah, it's so good to have you on Inside Music Cast, Tom. We've been chatting over the past couple of days trying to get this happening, and we're, we're finally uh, have you here uh, so we can talk about your, your music, you, and uh, uh-huh. musical collaborations. And, uh, and let, let's start off from the beginning just to let our audience know a little bit about you because you're a New York guy, and, uh, but you mm-hmm. were raised upstate New York and, and literally baptized into music very, very early in your life, weren't you? Absolutely does, Eddie and Rick. Um, I was born and raised in Rochester, New York, which is upstate, uh, maybe 300,000 plus people. But um, the circumstances of growing up there was that my father was a uh, a music professor. He was a pianist and a a composer, and he taught at the Eastman School of Music. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a theory and composition professor. And at that, it's still one of the most highly regarded um, music schools in the country. But yeah. back then it was, there were less of that sort of thing around and it would probably, you put it on a par with Juilliard at that point, you know? Yeah. So when I was a little kid, I, I started taking uh, classical piano lessons just in the, what they called the prep department, preparatory department. And, played all the major minor scales and the yeah. Cherney stuff and uh, <laughs> learned to read classical music somewhat and just grew up in that environment of, uh, you know, at the time, of course, when you're a little kid, you don't know, but, you know, the level of excellence was just mm-hmm. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So being around it uh, and then um, progressing on up, you know, uh, in, in the piano, I took about nine, maybe ten years worth of uh, piano lessons in, in that area. So uh, uh, definitely got some discipline and some uh, basic uh, technique and chops together. Coincident with that also was it was a, a place where a lot of touring artists came through and performed mm-hmm. and uh, quite a few classical artists, but some jazz people came through too. And uh, although my dad really wasn't into jazz, he took me to things whenever somebody would come through. And I saw Earl Garner when I was about eight years old. Really? Oh, man. My goodness. Talk about making an impression. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that cat to this day, you know, his energy and enthusiasm and sense of swing, everything about it. I mean, that, that just changed everything for me. And because my dad was there as a faculty member, we just strolled backstage afterwards and hung out <laughs> with the guys. And I mean, Earl was everything that you would imagine. He was just beaming and <laughs> happy and gum still, I can picture his face right now, you know, just couldn't have been nicer. And, wow. you know, just spent a few minutes with him and, you know, but I mean, I will never forget the concert, you know, just yeah. the, 
you know, at that point, we're talking about the late 50s, yeah. 56, mm-hmm. 56, 58 maybe, right. and he was at, at the top of his game, you know, and yeah. his, his chops and just blistering technique that he had. He couldn't read a note of music, you know, That's absolutely amazing. self-taught. Wow. But talk about making an impression, like I said. <laughs> wow. So, well. so there was that within... Uh, uh, not too long after that, Stan Getz came through. Uh-huh. Wow! And same thing. Went to the concert, rolled backstage, and <laughs> said hello to Stan. And uh, I mean, that made a different impression on me. Yeah. Stan was. This is before uh, the girl from Ipanema. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so he was playing more hard jazz and. Uh, the I didn't quite get what they were doing because I, I you know a little bit too young to to dig what hard jazz was about. But <laughs> we went backstage. I'm going. I'll, I'll I'll keep it diplomatic, but let's just say that the vibe wasn't quite as happy as when I went back to hear Earl. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I do remember after the concert, man, my my dad and I were leaving, getting ready to go home, and we walked out of the back of the building, mm-hmm. and I saw these guys piling into a station wagon. Oh. They had an upright base on the top of the station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the drum set was in the back. I stood there hypnotized <laughs> looking at this. I went, and they just all got in and drove off. I went, really? Those guys? Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They were just running around playing gigs, you know? But that was the thing back then. I mean, these guys would, would uh, you know, they'd find each other. They'd... Uh, you know, in, in fact, you were probably, you know, as you probably grew up a little bit, so you're so you're soaking up your classical, your dad's exposed, exposing you to jazz, and you're growing up, and, and you're seeing this other genre. I mean, a lot of really black artists that are really coming around, you know. You know and what, That's right. You know, wh- how old were you when you started, like, getting into, because I know you had an affinity towards, you know, things like, you know, the music of Fats Domino, Little Richard, you know, Oscar, uh, Oscar Peterson. How did it that develop? All, yeah, that, that that's a great question. Eddie. That that was all going on at the same time for me, hmm. and I I do owe my dad quite a tip of the hat. Like I said, he he didn't really like rock and roll or jazz, but yeah. he was interested in a wide variety of music, and he would do these seminars from time to time, the history of music and overview, and 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 you know when I was just around the house, he'd be putting together compilations on old reel-to-reel tape of different clips from different recordings that he thought were interesting that he would play for people. And Mm -hmm. it would be everything from African pygmies recorded in, you know, in Africa Mm -hmm. live, somebody going out with a, you know, just a reel-to-reel and recording them, to Stockhausen Mm -hmm. and and electronic music. And I would just be around the house listening to all of this stuff, you know, just completely one extreme to the other and then there'd be louis armstrong and bach and you know so i just heard all of that and at the same time like you said fats domino and little richard were just blowing up on the charts Mm -hmm. with you know their their hits and i mean that was just mesmerizing jerry lee lewis and which we can get to a little later certain kind of influences that had to Mm -hmm. me on me but all of those cats i mean they were all you know just 
pounding on the piano. You know? <laughs> yeah, really tearing them up. Yeah, exactly. Literally. And just, just dripping with soul and yep. grease and funk and blues and all of that stuff. So, again, I didn't know anything about where that came from, but I knew that I liked it. Yeah. Now, again, within a short period of time, I don't know how I found out about it. I was going out and buying records all the time, bought a lot of Earl Garner records and mm-hmm. whatever, but mm-hmm. somehow I picked up a copy of the the series that Miles did on Prestige with the first amazing quintet with Coltrane, you know, the cooking, steaming, relaxing, you know, all of that. I must've been 10 years old. I bought it and put that on and there was your impression. (laughs) Oh my God. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just listened to it over and over and over again. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the sound of Coltrane and the swing and Philly Joe Jones and, you know, so what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to just describe to you is that there was, from a very early age, I didn't really prefer any one of those kinds of music, you know, it's just, I was exposed to a lot of it and they existed in their own terms for me, you know, that, and as I grew older and found out more about music and, you know, the technical aspects of everything and from everything from blues to avant-garde, I go, well, yeah, I always did like all of this stuff. And I found it odd when I would run into people that, you know, they were more compartmentalized. They're just, yeah, yeah, I don't really like blues. It's kind of the same three chords. Or, yeah, I don't like jazz. It's just a bunch of yeah. guys showing off. Or, yeah, I don't <laughs> like avant-garde music. I need something with a melody. I go, oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, a very, very valuable exposure mm-hmm. and um, something I'm, I'm quite quite grateful for. You know. Well, that's that's actually what you just mentioned is a good segue because um, what I wanted to ask you now is, you know, we we talked a second ago about, you know, how you studied classical piano at Eastman. But um, yes. tell us about your evolution from, you know, that classical study at Eastman to your studying jazz and contemporary music at, at Berkeley and, and North Texas State. Right, right. Uh, that um, came about – Berkeley was first – and uh, I went there really just for a summer session. Oh, okay. Um, uh, the, the, this, the, the time period would have been about 1966. And mm-hmm. in that time, the ability to go to an accredited university and get a degree in jazz uh, did, did not exist, basically. Okay. You so. know, I, think, I think Indiana University might have had it, um, you know, North Texas. Right. Which, you know, we'll get to that, but I went there. But at that time, it, it was very on the out, outer edge of things. You know, yeah. now it's, it's everywhere, and, you know, there's great big music business mm-hmm. courses and 48-track recording studios and Pro Tools and everything, which right. is awesome. But mm-hmm. that did not exist. It, it, it was a, a pipe dream back yeah. then. Right. So Berkeley was not an accredited university at that point. So mm-hmm. you went there and got, like, a music certificate, which didn't translate into an actually BA, mm-hmm. you know, or a BM. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I went there for a summer session, and um, it was pretty intense. I found out there were a lot of guys that were a lot better than I was. Mm, wow. <laughs> I found that out quickly, like the first day. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was really scared. Humble <laughs> <laughs> Nice people. And, you know, because it was a summer session, it was a little underpopulated, and there weren't a lot of 
I can't refer back to a lot of names who then went on to be incredibly famous or anything uh-huh. at, at that particular, just because it was, I, I think it was a 10 week session or something, but I was in Boston and the, 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 uh, staff, you know, the, uh, the faculty was, uh, excellent. You know, I remember the cat that I took uh, jazz piano with this guy named, uh, Dean Earl, who actually reminded me of Earl Garner. He was just this little mm-hmm. happy, upbeat, you know, cat who, and he was a bebopper, you know, he understood yeah. the, the, you know, the details. I think he might've actually played with Charlie Parker in the day gone by, you know, so he, yeah. he knew what he was talking about and I knew nothing about it. I was, I was as green as little green apples. So, <laughs> you know, they just, they, and white as the new fallen snow. <laughs> so you stood out, huh? <laughs> Terrible, embarrassing. But uh, he was lovely and just very encouraging and very patient. So, um, you know, it, it, it was exposure and it was just a real reality check to go, yes, I want to do this. And I am just barely in the door. Well, yeah. However, perhaps I just was thinking about this this afternoon before you guys, we set this up to talk. And perhaps the most important thing that happened when I was at Berkeley was we, it was in the middle of the summer and we weren't far from Newport and couple of my buddies and I decided we were going to go up to the Newport Jazz Festival because we had the long weekend. It was 4th of July weekend, I believe. Yeah. And so we, I can't remember if we hitchhiked or took a bus or something. I mean, we didn't have a cent. We went up and slept on the beach. You know, we, we had <laughs> nothing, man. You know, I think maybe that guy had a car. But anyway, we got up there. This was 1966. And... Miles was the headliner one night with the band with Herbie and Wayne and Ron Jeez. and Tony, wow. you know, yeah. <laughs> wearing suits, playing a mile a minute. We had no, I mean, this was ESP time, you know, just yeah. they were past my funny Valentine and I had no idea what they were doing, you know, but it was, it was awesome. Uh-huh. It was really awesome. The next afternoon, Coltrane was the headliner and this was McCoy had already left the band. It was mm-hmm. Alice, Rashid Ali. I don't think Elvin was even playing. You know, he was in the you know the swirling thing with you know the Ascension. Right, and, right. You know, not even Love Supreme. You know. Yeah. It was in the middle of the afternoon, three o'clock. It must have been ninety-five degrees out. The sun was blazing down on us, and you know he played. I don't know if he took the horn out of his mouth at all, but he just played like a man possessed and oh my god, I mean it was way too much for me at the time but <laughs> it was it was a life changer and um, it, it turned out historically that he, he, was, he was getting ill at that point and he, that was the last time he had performed at Newport because he died before um, or he, he was so sick that he wasn't able to play the following year. So I happened wow. to have been there at his last Newport performance. Jeez, that's amazing. Farrell wow. Saunders was playing with him, too, actually. I just remembered that, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you were there. And there is an, uh, a CD that exists of that. And if you're if you have the courage, it's... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not easy listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you might imagine, you know, you imagine, I was like 15, 16 years old, you know. I mean, that just took the top of my head off, man. So that, I mean, I, you know, that happened as a result of going up to Berkeley. And, okay. you know, I, I don't know if I can, I don't think I can overestimate the impact, you know, and the, having heard that and just, you know, again, kind of being overwhelmed and not knowing what to make of it. But then as the years went on and I, you know, I've gone and I've spent a lot of time and been hugely moved by Coltrane over the years. So, um, you know, that it took a little while, but it began to make more sense what he was doing. Sure. You know, your next step was, of course, you know, after the Berkeley and this amazing experience, you know, over to North Texas State. How long were you there? Right. I was at North Texas. Well, it, just to quickly wrap up the Berkeley thing, it was yeah. it was very expensive and you couldn't really get a degree. And my, my parents said, um, is there any place else you can go? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so sense. So we looked around. I didn't yeah. know anything about it. I just heard about Berkeley from reading Downbeat. You know? Yeah. But um, we looked around and found out about North Texas. And you're going. You're not going to believe this. It was two hundred and fifty dollars a semester. Oh my gosh! Well, no wonder everybody for, went for, there. And that's for out of state. So <laughs> the guys that went there, I think it was like free. You know. Oh my gosh! You know, we so talked to a lot. They of, like that, as you might imagine. Rick, we've talked to a lot of the guys that that went there to North Texas State. Oh, right? the snark, snarky puppy is you know. Somebody oh, went. I know those guys are yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the uh, the new age guys. Yeah. Right, guys right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, exactly. You know? Right. But anyway, the, and it wasn't just the money, but I mean, that made it very attractive and very doable. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it was accredited. You could actually get a degree. So sure. uh, it wasn't even an audition thing. It was just a regular school. So yeah. Yeah. I applied and went. And the format was primarily big bands. Mm-hmm. You know, there was yeah, no recording yeah. studios. Yeah. There was no music business courses of anything. It was a big band structure. You, had, you probably talked to some guys that went there, and maybe yeah. they have, had already kind of described it. The lab band structure, the one o'clock was the best one, and then you know you had to audition to see how you what band you were going to get in, mm-hmm. and then you would get placed. You know, so very preponderant and heavy tilted towards horn players. Now that being said, let me let me mention a few names of who I was there at the same time with: Sal Marquez, mm-hmm. Gary Grant, Tom Malone, Lou Marini, and Bruce Fowler. Wow! <laughs> Sal Marquez was my first roommate there. <laughs> <laughs> amazing! That's amazing. I mean, you know, no, we didn't have any money. We didn't know what we were doing, you know. But that's what those were the guys that we were kind of bumping around with and hanging out with yeah. in the horn section. Well, they, and they, then they like that out-of-state uh, tuition too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I bet they did. Uh, now, also, you guys probably know that um, Dean Parks and David Hungate and I were, uh, oh, that's were right. also there. Yeah, that's true. And that's true. We fell into it uh, after a little while and uh, started a little rock and roll band, oh. including uh, Matt Benton on drums. And then Dean Parks was my second roommate. So we, we shared a little duplex that I think cost uh, $65 a month. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know it sounds like science fiction. I know. But, it happened. It really happened. Yeah. We think you're making this up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Somebody was making it up. 
but yeah, you know, then we just kind of, uh, we started um, playing and jamming and Dean had a few songs and, um, you know, the, the, the template on Dean was, I don't know if you've, if you've done an interview with Dean or not, but, um, not yet. I'd love to get him on the show. He, he would be a fascinating guy to yeah, talk to. Absolutely. At that, I got to tell you at that time, he was absolutely clear on where he was heading and where he wanted to go. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he, he was a very super talented dude with everything, could sight read anything and played saxophones and arranged it. He wanted to bust into the studio scene in LA mm-hmm. and he set his sights starting on the Dallas scene, Dallas, Texas, where there was a, a lot of jingles being done. So okay. from the time we had met and then, you know, became roommates and everything he was stepping right into that and his trajectory was you know he was just um completely committed to that and obviously he succeeded yeah about as amazingly as you could possibly imagine absolutely yeah 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 so that was the environment you know that we just a lot of i mean the lab band structure was one thing but a lot of other things took place outside of the structure, mm-hmm. you know, just hanging out and listening to lots of different kinds of music and, you know, everything from, I mean, the, you know, the records that were being released at that time was, you know, the Miles Davis Sorcerer and Miles Smiles and um, just Jimi Hendrix's first record. You sure. know, I, I heard Jimi Hendrix live back there. Wow, you know, in, in, <laughs> in Dallas, you know, he, he came through opening up for Sly Stone. Yeah, Jeez. yep, mm-hmm. yep. So that again, more of that, you know, all kinds of things going on all the time, and you know, just a tremendously creative experience being around all of those cats. You know, I just can't praise them highly enough. I mean, sure. we, there was a lot of. I mean, we used to play gigs like what we called tuxedo gigs, which were basically just kind of country club dance band gigs, you know, and so yeah. you just go in and play for these ridiculous country club people, yeah. but we were the guys that got the calls because you could come in and sight read everything and sure. literally put on a terrible looking tuxedo and go in. <laughs> <laughs> and, they'll da- and they'll dance to anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just doing that, you know, to pick up some money and, you know, networking and, and that kind of thing was going on ongoingly, you know. Yeah. There's also a guy that I'd like to mention that um, had a huge impact on me. Who You, you may have heard of it. It's a guy named Tex Allen. Yes. Tex is a brother from Houston, trumpet player. And I'd say he's a kind of more influenced kind of like a Lee Morgan kind of a player at that mm-hmm. time. He loved like Miles and Freddie Hubbard, but you know, his, his thing was a little more soulful and rootsy and put him more in that Lee kind of thing. But I don't know why, I don't know what he saw, but he took me under his wing and mm-hmm. was putting together these little jazz quartet and quintet things. And we did a lot of post bop things and some stuff that he wrote that was cantaloupe island that kind of stuff you mm-hmm. know and but way way back before everybody did it you know this was when it first came out and, sure and so you know a variety of guys from the from the lab band system you know he he would get us together and we'd play some gigs here and there and at at some point he he started taking me down to the hood in dallas uh-huh 
and again, as green as little green apples. I there was a new <laughs> level of realizing how green I was. You know, you, you, you get yeah. in there, brother. <laughs> I'm telling you, yeah. the, everybody was very nice to me, but I, I just had no idea. I, that's when I found out uh, how far I had to go with swinging yeah. and. I mean, to swing and groove hard and to construct solos and mm-hmm. all of that. And, you know, it, it, it again, invaluable. You yeah. Know. But, but, Tom, it, you know, it, it seems like we ask this question a lot to, to most of our guests because, you know, a lot of them, you know, end up in L.A. But what was your reason for heading out to L.A.? Um, the reason turned out to be... Uh, uh, that little band that I was telling you about with uh, with Dean and and Hungate and that. Oh, okay. okay. Um, we got contacted um, by the people from Sonny and Cher, who they were on tour and and this was not uncommon. I mean, the big band guys used to do this. They'd come through town and and yeah. ask for cats to come up from North Texas so that they could just put little pickup bands and pay them peanuts. You know, okay. to come right. in. Woody Herman and whoever, you know. Right. So, uh, Sonny and Cher were on tour, and they were kind of hot right then. This mm-hmm. would have been 68, 69, maybe. Amazing. And wow. 69, probably. And they had a couple of gigs and were looking for a rhythm section that could read. And um, I guess we had played around enough so that uh, whoever they called recommended us. Okay. And we went in and I think we did a rehearsal, went into Dallas or something and we read it down and, you know, because we were, we weren't just like jazz guys, you know, we were, we were also playing rock and roll and they liked that. You sure. know? So, so we got the gig and uh, played a couple of gigs with them. And then they called back later and uh, I mean, some time went by and then they offered us to be their rhythm section. And that would have required dropping out of school oh, okay. and, and going on the road with them. And three of us said, yes, Dave Hungate decided to stay behind and get his degree. As I recall, <laughs> but Dean and Matt and I said, yes. And, uh, so we joined them and they were going to do some sort of a mini tour of a few weeks, but it was going to end up in LA and so when we talked about it, the, the three of us, we went, well, maybe that's our ticket out to L.A., you know. Mm-hmm. So after some thought and some consideration, um, did it. And, and that was, it, you know, it wasn't something that you could have planned, but, you know, I was planning it, you know, and I know Dean certainly was, to, to come, go out here anyway, because I had... Um, you know, it's some. You realize where you're not going to stay around Denton, Texas. You, yeah. you, know, you gotta, you gotta go where the action is, and um, so that was the uh, the circumstance that uh, brought us out. I see. Interesting. Now, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there is a little further Sunny and Cher story that I thought of um, uh, that you guys might dig. Sure. Um, and this pertains to the, how the, the extensions of uh, people that you met way back when lead to other things. Okay, okay. So we were, we were on tour with Sonny, and, and uh, we, were, we got a gig at, I think we were playing one of, they did a lot of these high-end 
supper club things occasionally for a lot of money. And I think we were playing at the Waldorf Castoria or something in New York. Uh-huh. Anyway, we were in New York for a few days. So I, this is after leaving North Texas. So I got in touch with Tom Malone. And now, you, you know who Tom is. I mean, he, he'd been in Saturday Night Live band and you yeah. know, then had been a, in David sure, Letterman's sure. band exactly. for, for 25 years. Right. Yeah, you know, tremendous musician and, you know, great businessman and, you know, wonderful cat, you know. So anyway, this, again, this would have been 69, maybe barely getting into 1970. So we were there for a few days. I called Tom and we hung out for the day. I went to a session with him and we went to a rehearsal hall where he was playing with somebody. And I was kind of walking around the rehearsal hall and looking at the bulletin board this is all no cell phones no you know no emails no nothing you know so right right <laughs> uh, postcards on a on a bulletin board right <laughs> right so i walked up to this bulletin board and i looked around and there was a little postcard that said moving need to sell some rare records from my collection call if interested chick korea <laughs> and he had his phone number up there wow. i went really Wow! (laughs) so time stood still for a second i went shit i'm gonna call him you know (laughs) now i had already seen him playing with miles you know i mean i was a big miles fan. so you knew you knew who he was i had heard him with wayne and dave holland and jack dejanette and those guys so he was my big one of my biggest heroes you know wow so i called him up and he said come on over yeah cool so i went over i you know couldn't have been more nervous, but yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I caught him, he was just in the process of leaving Miles and putting together, I don't know if you knew that band that he had, him and Dave Holland and um, Anthony Braxton had a trio, yeah. um, which they did a couple of blazing records. One of them's called Song of Singing, and um, then they further went on and put a band together called Circle with uh, Anthony Braxton, which was all the way out. Okay. All the way out yeah. of music, you know, which they did for a couple of years until Chick probably got tired of being poor and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> decided to do something a little more accessible. Yeah, yeah. But that's when I met him, and he they were just completely devoted to pushing that window of edgy, you know, seriously New York, East Village kind of, you know, the synthesis of, you know, that whole furious kind of way of playing that McCoy Tyner had pioneered and... Um, you know, avant-garde and, you know, Bella Bartok kind of influences right. and mixed all in with, you know, everything that he learned playing with Miles and Wayne. So it was pretty heady stuff for me. And I spent the afternoon over there hanging with him. I bought some of his records. And at that point, he was studying avant-garde piano music, and he showed me some of the piano music. It looked like um, a dog had just walked across the paper. I had, I, mean, you, I had no, it, it's not even written in a regular score, you know, so wow. uh, astonishing. Yeah. But again, you know, just a huge, huge moment for me to kind of go over there and hang out with him. And he yeah. couldn't have been nicer and yeah. showed me some things on the piano that, you know, that, you know, had a big influence on me and, and everything. Yeah. So that was kind of, uh, had I not gone to North Texas and not, met Tom alone. I don't know if I, how yeah. or when I would have run into Chick, you know. We, we actually uh, remained in touch, you know, over several years after that, and, you know, he was mentoring me with a little bit of 
piano playing and stuff. Very yeah. cool. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your L.A. experience because once you got to L.A., you started, you know, some things started happening. You started meeting some people. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, one of the first guys you met was John Clemmer, and I'm I'm a big John John Clemmer fan. But you know, you oh, actually cool. you know you actually played on some of his stuff. I mean, of uh, you know, in in his uh, 1973 album Intensity and in '74 yeah. Magic and Movement. Right. So, but you even played with uh, a guy we just mentioned a couple minutes ago, Dean Parks was on that album too. And uh, so, you know, Clemmer being an amazing musician, but he's so eclectic yeah. and a little out there. What was the experience yeah. with John Clemmer out there? Uh, well, I'm really glad you're a fan because, uh, you know, a lot of people know of him mostly with the Echoplex and mm-hmm. what, you know, sort of predated what everybody liked to call smooth jazz later right. on, you know, but John was a bad boy. He was. He, he he came up in Chicago. Yes, he was. Yeah, and yeah. came up hard, man, with cats like Eddie Harris showing yep. him the ropes, and um, you know played bebop and found his way and got just prodigious command of the saxophone. So mm-hmm. I don't know how he he just called me up one day. You know, he was looking to uh, you know change his band up. I, I'm not. I don't even remember. It was in 1972. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. and. Um, did a test drive on it. We rehearsed and seemed like a fit. And so we started running around and doing gigs with various rhythm sections. And I'd been playing some kind of edgy Coltrane ish kind of pushing the window kind of things with a little trio. And he liked that. So we started to use that trio, which became the, some of the stuff we did on the intensity album. Okay. And, so we were playing around and played some concerts, and, you know, it, it, I caught him at a time when he really wanted to play. You know, he'd had some success with Yekoplex and Waterfalls and My Beloved Has Butterfly Wings, but he wanted to dig in hard and work on the modal, the Coltrane things, and not play it safe. So that's when I stepped in to, to his band, and um, that's all we did for about two years. Mm-hmm. And the the albums that we did, I'm sorry to say, they're all out of print, you know, floating around yeah, right. um, on YouTube, which is, I think, is a shame because they're just, you know, not not even so much for me, but I mean, John's playing is just, you know, ridiculous on these albums. Yeah. It, it was really something, man. You know, yeah. just a you know a, a force of nature. So we did stuff like, you know, remember the, the Lighthouse Cafe in, in L.A. was a pretty well-known joint. You know, we used to go down there and do a week or two weeks sometimes, six nights a week, and, you know, just go for it. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that he was a bad boy, and, and he really was. You know, this guy was definitely off the beaten track because, I, if I'm correct, you know, he I mean, he even had a full ride at Interlock and to, to go to school, and he, he's, you know, he basically You're told right, him just Eddie. shove it. You know, this guy went to... This guy went basically <laughs> straight straight to the club scene in in Chicago and said, "I'll do it myself." I mean, this guy was, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but he was awesome. Very self motivated guy, man. Very very uh, restless and always wanting to move forward, but mm-hmm. you know, just full of energy and very prolific. And yeah, you're right about the interlocking thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, he knew what he was doing, man. He was, uh, you know, a highly skilled musician. Yeah. So this led to, uh, the, you know, this is one of my favorite John Clemmer experiences. And, and the, the, there are a couple things, but this one in particular, um, we did that intensity record. That was in the, I think it was 
early 1973. I, I went back and did a little research to try to be presentable for you guys here. So, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that's right. It was the beginning of 73. And shortly, I mean, it was very Coltrane-y. And uh, shortly after that, he got a gig. He got a commitment to go to play at the Montreux Jazz Festival mm-hmm. in July of 73. Okay. And, you know, it's a huge international success now and has been for decades. It was just kind of getting started back then, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So he, he told me about it. He, asked, he wanted me to go with him, and he said, you know, I, I can't remember exa- if it was just strict money that he didn't want to take a rhythm section, or my suspicion is that there was an option to access some serious players over there to pick up bass and drums and, and go and do the concert, you know, at, at the, in Montreux. Uh-huh. In any event, we ended up playing with Cecil McBee on bass and Alphonse Muzan on drums. Okay. Which was, you know, you want to talk about the hardcore East Coast fellas. I mean, they were they were serious. I mean, Al Muzan had just finished, he was the first drummer in Weather Report, you know. And Cecil McBee had played with everyone, you know. He was older than we were. So, um... We were excited, mm-hmm. as you might imagine, and a little scared, you know. Thought, oh, oh, sure. Okay, but th- this would be exciting, man. You know, they're really aggressive and fantastic <laughs> musicians. Um, I will, again, put this diplomatically. Okay. But let's just say that Al Muzan didn't feel like rehearsing. Okay. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, he really didn't want to rehearse. Okay. So we didn't rehearse. Mm-hmm. We just went on and played. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, wow. No rehearsal whatsoever. Wow. And it was recorded, live, filmed as well. Uh And, you know, we're going, wow. I mean, I think part of it, I think he was just kind of pulling a little bit of the New York attitude on us two little white boys from L.A. kind of thing. I think yeah. there's a little bit of that going on, and I don't blame him, you know. I, but anyway, <laughs> we just went ahead and played, man. <laughs> and, I, you know, I did send you that track. I don't know if you listened to it or not, the the, the Clemmer thing. Yeah, the Free For but, Love? Oh, uh, yeah, Free Love. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, it was good. I mean, man, it, it was 40 years ago, and I mean, I... I haven't listened to it for a long time. It's beautiful. Like, it's that beautiful. Is fantastic. It's an amazing piece. Just completely, just f- complete blowtorch, you know, yeah. of energy. And, <laughs> you know, you listen to what uh, Cecil and Alphonse are doing, and, I mean, it is, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And somehow we hung on. I tell you, I kind of, I can tell by listening to it, I've, I was playing it, Almost like literally counting sometimes. So I go, man, I am not going to get lost at the Montreux Jazz Festival and lose my place while it's being recorded and filmed. I mean, Muzan's time was it was just like a hurricane going on yeah. the whole time. Yeah, you know, just in- incredible. But his his time was fantastic. It's just that it was that super aggressive, you know, village gate kind of pounding, you know, and just flurries of, you know, subdivisions with the time and everything. So I was literally just hanging on for dear life, man, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But when 
I listen to it now, I go, man, that sounds pretty good. It sounds really good, you know? And John was amazing. I mean, his, it, it, if you sit down and just kind of listen to that thing a couple times, I yeah. mean, he, he was in complete command the whole time. You know, he'd let the energy ebb a little bit and kind of settle down, and then he'd just start shrieking, you know, on the sax. Yeah. You know, very, just, you know, not not at all letting it get away from him and, you know, being in charge of it and making sure that the energy never faltered at all. So right. um, quite an experience, mm-hmm. yeah. quite quite the experience. The, the other thing with John is, and I don't know if we're ready to segue into that or not, but we, at some point we're going to, is that it was through John that Al Jarreau found out about me. Okay. All right. Wondered about that. Yeah. So yeah, we can we can go there if there's anything else you want to talk about before that. But that, that well, it, it is one way to segue. We must have sent you the we must have sent you the script ahead of time because uh, it's exactly what we want to do. I'm looking at my next uh, my next note, and uh, you know, with Al Jarreau, I mean, your your collaboration with Al, you know, pretty much changed your career and and actually changed his career Absolutely. as well. And you know, and, and yeah. w- when you met him, uh, he hadn't signed with a record label, I think, and. Uh, yeah, That's or, right. Yeah, he did not was, have a deal. It was like 74 or 75, wasn't it? 74? 74, yeah. yeah 74. Um, I had been hearing about him. Uh, the hipster musicians that I was hanging around with at that time, mm-hmm. um, and not just jazz guys, you know, like you probably noticed I had been working in the very early days with T-Bone Burnett. And right, exactly, right. Kind of, yeah, I mean, this was before he was the T-Bone Burnett that he is now, but, right. you know, we... We started the guy. We played on the very first album he ever did as a solo artist, wow. 1971 or something like that. You know, so we were doing tons of, you know, sessions for no money, and then he was producing different artists, and you know, and I did a whole lot of independent records with him, and just various sessions that there was a lot going on with that. So it was a different world, you know, more rock singer songwriter kind of stuff. Right, uh, but. Uh, you know the the reason I mention it in conjunction with that is that it would, even from guys in that circle, people would say to me, "You know, you should go hear this guy, Al Jarreau. <laughs> yeah. he's, he, you know, he's kind of doing something really different. He does this stuff like he imitates a guitar and a flute and percussion with his voice, and he's kind of a jazz singer." And yeah, I kept I kind of kept going, "Yeah, I don't know, I don't." Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I don't know. It sounds kind of weird. So I didn't. I never went. You know. I oh my gosh. He was probably playing ten minutes away from me, but I yeah. didn't go. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. You didn't yeah, have. You didn't have a really one a... time. Out of nowhere, he called me. Really? How? He no. called me up and just said he was playing at this place that you guys may have heard of called the Blah Blah Cafe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just a little dump that held maybe seventy-five people down in uh, Studio City in L.A., and he, he said, I've been working as a duo with a, another keyboard player, and okay. he's leaving. I'm looking for a keyboard player, and, um, you, know, you're, you're just, you know, your name's come up a couple of times, and I just wonder if you want to come down and check out our set and see if it might be something that you're interested in. So yeah. I'd never heard him before. I only, you know, I mean, he didn't have a deal. He didn't have anything out, and... So I just went down to the to the little club, the Blah Blah Cafe, and went in and said hello to him. He had uh, a keyboard player up there with a Fender Rhodes on stage, and the stage was about big enough for a Fender Rhodes and a microphone. And there, that was it. there you go. There you go. Tiny, tiny place. Just 
This is 1974. No smoking ordinances in place. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> you couldn't breathe in that place. Yeah. I mean, it was packed yeah. and just, you know, thick fog of smoke. But right. that's what he was doing on the weekends. And very affable. We chatted for a couple of minutes before he started. And um, so I, I just sat down on the front table right in front of the stage. I was, you know five, six feet away from him. Yeah. I'll tell you guys, as soon as he started, I felt like I was nailed to my chair. (laughs) I, it was difficult to move. I mean, I was absolutely overwhelmed with, Mm -hmm. you know, it would the 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 closest parallel I could, you know, I went on a little bit earlier about Coltrane and miles and everything, but I had the same kind of feeling, you know, I went, Oh my God this guy's a genius, yeah. you know, he's <laughs> unbelievable. It was just him. He had this, uh, you know, percussion instrument called a kabasa that mm-hmm. he would, you know, he would kind of groove on hard. Mm-hmm. And that was the, that was the percussion and the, and the, the drum groove that he sure. was supplying himself, which he would play while he was singing, not just the melody, but while he was scatting like a madman, yeah. he'd yeah. still keep that. Get that thing going, you know. Wow. <laughs> I was absolutely floored. Yeah, just astonished. Mm-hmm. And after the set, you know, he comes down. He goes, "Oh, yeah, what do you think, man?" You know, I went, "When do you want to start?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, very shortly after that, that's when we began um, doing the duo Friday and Saturday night for um, I think it was thirty dollars a night. Jeez. And he had management at the time, but that was it. It was just a, a, a single guy managing him. He, I don't think he, a guy named Patrick Rains who went on to manage all kinds of people like David Sanborn and Marcus yeah. Miller and everything, but he was just getting started, and Al was his first client at that point. Okay. And he didn't really have any clout, you know. I mean, well, none of us did, you know. <laughs> it, but here was this guy, Al Giro, who as soon as you hear him, you go, this guy's going to be a superstar. Right. There's nobody like him. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's incredible. He was so handsome and funny and, you know, charismatic. And he just, really is. Oh my God. I mean, it's just beyond belief. We've, we've been fortunate to have him on our show before and we just had a ball. Oh, talking I know. To I've him. heard the interview. It's oh, a did wonderful you? <laughs> interview that you guys <laughs> oh, did. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. It was great to have him on there. You know, uh, you know, yeah. well, we're, well, we're talking about that and you're working with him at the beginning. You know, you started working and you, you know, let's talk about the first album, the critically acclaimed We Got By, which you arranged. Sure. But you know what? In looking at their credits, I found something that I hadn't really seen before. And because uh, we noticed that, you uh, you know, who did the horn and string arrangements? And that was Dave Grusin. And, Dave uh, Grusin. That's yeah. right. And uh, it, was this your first time working with him? Because this, this album bought some, I mean, there were some great tracks, you know, We Got by you know sweet potato sure. pie raggedy ann sure. or, uh, was this your first uh, attempt uh, or working with dave grusin dave grusin well i actually didn't meet him really now. okay now the the stuff that he did uh, he added some keyboards to uh, a few tunes okay. uh just as you know sweetening kind of things but it was done on overdub sessions i ah, gotcha and this is before i wasn't really al's musical director at that point i mean uh-huh. we were simpatico you know right. yeah but um, you know, he, did, he didn't really need a musical director. We just, that was the, the little trio that we had with myself and Paul Starworth and Joe Carrero. That was it. You know, it was just a little bit. There were no gigs. There were no tours, you know. So um, 
it, it wasn't like I was there, you know, when, I mean, we cut the tunes and then that was it, you know, yeah, I didn't right. really come around for the overdubs and whatever. And so, um, that was done, you know, I think wisely by Al Schmidt, who was the producer uh, and, um, okay. you know, he, he could tell that the album needed, you know, just the trio by itself wasn't going to make it. You yeah. Know? Is that it the way it was? Cool, it, but a little too stripped down. Yeah. Is that the way it worked out with Glow also? Because, you know, the uh, the musician ar Arsenal was just amazing. I mean, right about now, then, you're starting to get guys like Carlton and Wilton Felder and even Joe Sample right. is playing on it. So you're stepping it up now. Yes. That, um, we could back up just a minute. Um, you know, just leading up to Al getting a deal, I, mm -hmm. I, I just love to tell this story sure. because um, it, it's so it speaks so much to the time in the record business and the uh, you know which we can maybe talk about a little later if we have time of just what I would call the magic time in L.A. You know, when you know the the, the consciousness and the you know the, the sensibility of you know the, who was running the record business and the kind of the relationship of the the record companies to the artists etc you know so uh, you know when we were back at the blah blah um various people came down including Ahmed Erdogan who was quoted as saying after hearing Al he said he's fantastic i don't know what to do with him <laughs> you know this is <laughs> <laughs> he passed. You yeah, know? Yeah. I remember him showing up in a big Rolls Royce and came in. He literally came into the blah blah, you know. Uh, <laughs> but at some point, Mo Austin from Warner Brothers heard Al, and it was at the Troubadour, right. I believe. He came backstage afterwards and he said, Come on in. I want to sign you. Come, <laughs> come on in tomorrow or whenever it was the next day. And so they went in and. Pat and Al have, had told me, and, you know, we just over the years have repeated it many times, that Mo told him, he said, you know, you're going to be an international superstar, <laughs> and we're going to do it so that nothing gets compromised. We want you to be your own man, and we want you to know that we are going to be there for you. We're, I want you to know that it's going to, we know that it's going to take at least three albums, maybe four albums before you break. So we don't want to make any quick moves. We want you to develop as a performer and as a composer and everything about you. And we are going to be there and we're going to help make this happen to the best of our ability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you're not going to hear that today, <laughs> especially with somebody as, you know, not mainstream as Al Jarreau. Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah. So the reason I just wanted to mention that is um, that that had quite a bit to do with what you just mentioned there, Eddie, about the kind of people that were being enrolled to work on the album. Yeah, you know? yeah, I follow you. That on the first record that Dave Grusin would come in, and that um, the second record was a, a co-production with Tommy LaPluma and Al Schmidt. Yeah. And they, they were a, quite a team, as you, as you may know. Sure. But, but uh, Tommy was... He he was maybe more of that was a good producer, but Tommy had a way of picking songs. You know, he just the, one of the great skills of a of a of a great producer. I feel is you know to be able to pick an outside song or two for an artist that might make a big difference. And I think the the two of them together, they were they would have a lot to do with bringing in that team, you know, and that mm -hmm. was Larry Carlton. I mean, Willie Weeks was playing bass. Will yeah. Felder played some bass. Joe Sample played some keyboard overdubs. Um, you know, that's, that's some serious cats, you know, and then 
myself and Joe Carrera were in kind of on the core on that. Right. So that was, uh, you know, that's actually, that's one of my favorite albums mm-hmm. of all of them. Yeah. It was done very quickly. Really? Very, very quickly. Just, I bet you we cut the tracks in, you know, probably at least a couple a day, you know, wow. maybe three, you know, just knocked them out and went home. <laughs> but there's a real spontaneous kind of a yeah. in the moment feel about it. And, you know, it's just on the loose. Yeah. You know? Well, let me ask you a question regarding this album, you know, and you're saying, you know, you, you just prefaced this uh, project by saying that Tommy DePuma, he was, you know, as a producer, you know, just the song selection was really um, a, a, oh, yeah. a gift for him. But on this album of Glow, you know, you included some tracks. Actually, there were some uh, really eclectic numbers. I mean, you had a Leon Russell tune, Rainbow in My Eyes. Right. Tommy brought that one in. Yeah. Right. I mean, you had Elton John's Your Song. I mean, you even put mm-hmm. threw in a James Taylor tune. That's, and that's where that uh, uh, Fire and Rain comes along. Fire and know? Rain. Now, that's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Absolutely. Al's, I mean, you know, the, many people have recorded that song. Yeah. But it's not just because of my relationship with Al. That's just my favorite version of Fire and Rain. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing how that went down in the studio when we got there to cut it, Al and I had that. Well, that's one of the songs we had been doing at the Blah Blah. You know, they they popped up from time to time. Like we used to do your song, okay. um, Have you seen the child? Uh, and fire and rain. And yeah. somebody's watching you is also on uh, the Sly Stone song. We did all of those as a duo at the Blah Blah. Yeah. So. By the time we got to the studio, it's like, oh, this is going to be a great one to do with the band, the Fire and Rain thing. And um, I mean, we're getting ready to cut it, and Al comes over to me and goes, man, we need an intro for this. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas? And I just remember I, it was a, a lucky moment, and I just went, I just tossed my hands down on the keyboard, and I started playing that pattern that is the intro, became the intro to Fire and Rain. I yeah. went, hmm. What about this? Anyone? <laughs> cool, that's great. Let's do that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it happened right then. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, not to, it's not really about me, but it was just a, a great moment that, yeah. you know, something happened. And, you know, that just it added something really cool to it, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of, you don't quite know what's going to happen at first until it, it kicks into the verse. Okay. And, oh, man, the vibe on that track is so funky. It really is, Al yeah. just sings his booty off, and just <laughs> everybody plays so good. Larry Carlton yeah. plays some cool shit, and it's, it's just, it's, it's very moving, mm-hmm. you know, really, really tremendous. You know, it, it seems as if, uh, you know, you were naming these albums in some spans of time, these tracks of these projects. And, you know, this probably, it, like you say, this happens so often in the, in the subsequent albums and the tracks. I mean, uh, I mean, I can, I can pull, pinpoint, uh, just one track out of, uh, the next album, which was, uh, I believe, I believe it's called All Fly Home. Um, uh, well, the next one was the live record. The live record, okay. Then the one live after that, yeah. the, the one after that, "Off Fly Home." I mean, there was a, a great track with that featured trumpeter um, well, Freddie Hubbard. Freddie Hubbard, right? It's man. called "Fly," yeah. and "Fly" was I just an amazing. That. Oh, yeah, that's that is a Greg Matheson song. Is it really? Really? Yeah, it's called "I'm Home." Wow. And oh man, that is such an emotional, heartbreaking, beautiful song. Mm-hmm. I love that song. And um, yeah, lyrics were by a cat named Dave Frischberg, but that's Greg's song. Yeah, that's we've had him on the show before, Greg, and he's an amazing uh, artist. Tremendous man, Greg. Greg's he's my man. You know, t- tremendous 
musician, player, arranger, producer. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, Freddie Hubbard came in. Yeah. That was memorable because uh, at that point, that would have been like 1977. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whose idea it was to bring him in. Um, anyway, he wow. came in and um, brought a little jazz attitude with him. Yeah. Like, you know. You would expect, yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of let us know that he was dumbing it down to be even be in the room with us. See, that, that kind of came in the studio. With <laughs> you couldn't have found a room full of people that loved his playing more than us. We yeah. all, I mean, next to Miles, I mean, Freddie was the cat, you know. Yeah, so yeah. it was a thrill, and, uh, you know, he obviously played wonderful, but <laughs> just yeah. a, a little, I mean, he's he's been gone for a while. God bless yeah. his heart. I love him. I, you know just revere all of his work that he's done over the years. But I remember uh, when we rolled the tape, he did. He, there, he said, I don't want to see a chart. He said, just roll the tape, you know. So yeah. he, didn't, I mean, he didn't even look at the changes. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. So I think he might have listened to the tune once, or maybe he just started playing, you know. Anyway, he took a shot at it, and um, it was good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Al Schmidt asked him if he would uh, do another one, and he was... He didn't want to do another take at all. <laughs> What's wrong with the at first all? one? <laughs> That's it, you know. Yeah, yeah. He he did very reluctantly and with like I said, with that kind of that attitude, consent to do a second take. Uh-huh. But that was it. Yeah. He said that that's it. That's the only that's, that's it all you for get. Me, two takes. <laughs> and and he didn't want to hang. He just packed up and left. I'm sure he was wow. insulted with that. Wow. He was wow. insulted. <laughs> that's you great. Know, don't take this the wrong way, guys. I mean, it's, to me, it's just really it's just colorful. It's just a moment, you know. Sure. And then you listen to the. I listened to it a few days ago just to refresh my memory. I'm like, man, maybe that was the first take. Maybe he was right, you know? <laughs> Jeez, amazing. <laughs> that, that's a great story. Yeah, very cool. But, you know, that's exciting, man, to have a great jazz living legend like that come in and play on your album. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. That's cool. That is cool. You know, um, you know, we're we're talking about the the albums that that really are, and, and they're getting more serious as we go along. And and the next one I want to talk about is is one of my all time favorites. It's called This Time, and and of you co wrote a lot of these tracks. And, and and at this stage, like Never Given Up, Give Me What You Got, mm-hmm. Alonzo. It's it's just simply brilliant. Oh, thanks, Eddie. Al and I had started writing on the previous album, the one that we just started talking about, All Fly Home. We had kicked some ideas around prior to that, but. It was the first time that we actually sat down. I I came up with a couple of uh, things with with just the music and an outline of a melody, and uh, played them for him, and he liked them. So we ended up with three songs on yeah. that one uh, on All Fly Home that we co-wrote. Yeah, thinking about it too was one of them, which actually got on the R and B charts, and sure. um, that that was pretty cool for us, you know. And so that worked, you know. That was the beginning of the writing relationship. But if we start talking about this time, it's time to start talking about Jay Graydon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that had a lot. I mean, there's a little bit of a run up that Al and I had. We had started working on tunes prior to the uh, the formal. Um, you know, decision to have Jay be the producer. So we had some things, uh, never given up. And I think maybe your sweet love or two or three of them, you know, that we had gotten something together. I believe it was sort of waiting to be resolved with who was going to produce. So 
we did hit it off. I remember how I did, do remember how I felt um, though when I first came up with the Never Given Up um, music bed. Yeah, I just had the verse, and I remember when I played it and just by myself and the piano and had that sort of beginning to wonder if it was just horrible. I went, man, does this sound like a, like a Las Vegas lounge tune? <laughs> it sounds really, you know, these da 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 God, is this, this is corny? What is this? I mean, I was actually afraid to play it for Al because I went, oh man, I think he's going to hate this, you know. And, <laughs> but I, I mean, I said, hey, look, nobody else is going to be there. If he doesn't like it, he doesn't like it. But I, I must say I was nervous when I played it for him. And I didn't have a chorus. You know, I just yep. had the everything, you know, the verse and flying high, flying high. So I played it for him, and as soon as we got to that, the end of that, he goes, "I know where we're going. Never giving up, never gonna give it up." He just came up with the chorus on the spot. Jesus, brilliant! And there it was. He he wrote the chorus himself, and my verse and his chorus worked really well, and there was the song. Complete masterpiece, masterpiece of a tune. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, but, you know, if you want to, I mean, there's a lot of aspects we could go into, but I'd like to right away mention Greg Matheson again. Yeah. Because uh-huh. when Jay became the producer, I mean, then the level of calling in the A-team went way upstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys to come in and play on the tracks. Right. And Greg was called to work on Never Given Up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was Jay's call of course and he asked greg to arrange the rhythm track and maybe do a string arrangement and also play piano on it you know he just thought he'd be the perfect cat for it and he was mm-hmm. you know that whole intro on never given up uh that yeah. was something that greg came up with himself really that it was based on the melody of course but the whole everything that preceded when al came in that was the arrangement that Greg brought in to okay. the session, you know. So, uh, you know, obviously a, a, you know, wonderful way to start the song, you know, and just fantastic arrangement and mm-hmm. everything. And he played, you know, the, the basic piano part on the rhythm track and, you know, killed that too. So big shout out to Greg for that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even play on the tune. So I'll tell you, <laughs> no, I was really. just, I was, no, I was just, felt like I was lucky to be in the room with yeah. these guys. Because, <laughs> you know, you are t- you're talking about the heavy, heavy A-team. Yeah. I mean, you, if, you know, you cats know who played on this stuff. Yeah, right. Sure. I mean, you, Never Given Up was Abe Laboriel Sr., mm-hmm. Ralph Humphreys mm-hmm. on drums, Greg playing the strings and the, and the uh, you know, the basic piano. Jerry Hay came in with the horn arrangement. Right. You know, this is the A team that was just tearing it up on all the sessions in mm-hmm. town. You couldn't have found a bigger A list. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I wasn't at all in with those cats. So I was, you know, a bit in awe of David Foster and you know all of those dudes and sure. you know Carlos Vega and yeah. you know so at some point, I mean, Steve Gadd was even <laughs> in on some of that wow. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, just jumping ahead to 81 and uh, the Breaking Away album is, you know, the follow-up to this time. But, you know, you guys, again, raised the bar. You know, there's some great songs in there like Breaking Away. The mm-hmm. That's, you know, the L.A. pop tune that was, you know, all over the place. But, you know, we're, yeah. you know, we're in this love together became, you know, such yeah. a huge unexpected crossover hit. And it, you know, right. got a ton of air airplay. Ah, yeah. Well, it was actually Al's biggest hit. I think yeah. that went, ended up going into top 10, yeah. you know, pop, which... Mm-hmm. Which he'd never had before or since, you know. Yeah, and again, <laughs> well, here's a little uh, behind the music story for you about that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, you know, if you'd like to hear it, absolutely, um, sure. Um, you know, at that, you know, the the this time was a big success, and it was quickly went gold, and you know, so there was no question that Jay was going to continue to produce, and he was he was a very formidable writer, arranger, and guitar player, and everything, you know, and he'd, he'd been a first call session dude, and, you know, just attention to detail, and, you know, master musician, and, you know, really knew what he was doing with production, and, you know, we could spend an hour talking about right. everything I learned from Jay, you mm-hmm. know, but um, in particular, um, Songs were submitted at that point. Quite a bit of songs were pouring in from songwriters and publishing companies. Yeah. You know? And they, they all came in on cassettes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Audio cassettes. <laughs> That's what we had at the <laughs> and time. And a lot of them just went to uh, Al's management. You know, Al mm-hmm. didn't really have time to listen to him, and Jay didn't really spend time listening to him. He would rather just get in there and write the stuff, you know, if possible. <laughs> Which we did. You know, on that album we ended up co writing five songs together, yeah. you know, and you know, that was pretty, you know, inspiring and awesome, you know, work, working as a three way writing team as well. But anyway, at some point one of uh, the guys in Al's management company was he was kind of in charge of listening to all the cassettes that came in, and he literally listened to everything that went th- through the office. So mm. you know, handfuls of cassette tapes. Yeah, and he found the song. Really, he sent it over, and it came from two guys in Nashville. They were country writers, and it did not sound like the way it ended up being produced. It kind of had a little dorky, almost two beat. Kind of a groove to chick a doom, chick a doom, chick a doom. that last forever, you know. Anyway, he sent it over, and the, I remember the three of us were in Jay's studio, just kind of putting on the finishing touches. I think we were getting ready to go in and record within a couple of days um, to, to start recording, or pretty soon. Anyway, it was getting into the home stretch, and. Jay put the cassette on when we were there, listened to it, and went, this is a hit. We're going to cut it. Yeah. This wow. is going to be the hit <laughs> off the record. Wow. And I remember my own reaction was, oh, that is such a piece of crap. I hate that song. That's, that's such a stupid song. What's he thinking about? That's the difference between me and Jay. <laughs> he, he pulled it he out. He heard the hit. Wow. Wow. That's Did amazing. he ever, man. Jeez. And, you know, that's kind of what we were talking about, about Tommy LaPuma, man. It's that instinct that, you know, do you know this is a hit, this song's going to be perfect yeah. for this guy, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. It just, I couldn't have missed it more. I'd missed it by a country mile, you know. And That's the, that's the magic, And he though. nailed it, buddy. Yeah. And, 
and the rest is history. You know, yeah. masterful production. You know, tremendous. All the musicians, just yeah. You know, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, all of that. You know, that elaborate. Um, uh, all the parts. You know, the, the multiple keyboard parts were all done by Michael Omardian. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. And I was. Yeah, again, I don't think I played on that track. Um, But Michael was, you know, super type A, really tremendously accomplished, Mm -hmm. very enthusiastic, and you know, also was becoming a producer at that time, as I recall. But masterful keyboard player and you know, arranger and all that stuff. And I remember he just rolled in. They had some programmer guy who came in with a bunch of gear and. We had cut the most basic of tracks, bass and drums, and I think Jay might have cut a track with rhythm guitar on it or something. And Michael just played everything down right there. He hadn't hadn't worked anything out. Wow! All of the the little figures and stuff. You listen to all those. Sure. All of those things. He just knocked them out within about three hours. I just stood there with my mouth open, watching go down and going, Rap. It was definitely, and, uh, you know, the, it was the birth of a hit record. Just watching it happen, he had right. so much to do with that. That's so a, much. That's amazing. You know, you know that takes us to you know tunes like you know my old friend, and then Roof Garden. Oh, when, beautiful song. You know, when Gorgeous we talk, song. When we talked to Jerry Hay, he talked about the horn parts and and the technical aspects of Roof Garden, and and he just went <laughs> deep on all that stuff. And it was just uh, it just reinforces what you're telling us about how deep these guys were. You know. Yeah. Jerry Hayes' contribution was uh, just, you know, you, you can't say enough great stuff about him and the whole horn section. I mean, uh, those tunes that you mentioned, I mean, the Roof Garden, of course, is just, you know, Insane. unbelievable yeah. horn charts. and uh, But everything that he played on, you know, whether it was sort of busy and almost jazzy like Roof Garden or something more kind of romantic and thoughtful like My Old Friend or... You know, it, it, it just whatever it called for, he just seemed to have an, you know, an, an in, intense kind of in, inherent kind of instinct about what would work, you know, what what's going to work the best, what's going to lift the song up to the next level. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the musicianship of those guys playing together was just, you know, it was about as high level as it gets. And, um, I'm pretty sure Gary Grant was in on some of that stuff on the playing yeah. trumpet, who was my old North Texas buddy, you know. Right, so exactly. Years and years go by, and then here's Gary, first call trumpet player, playing on Al Jarreau records, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, hey, yeah, Tom. Jerry Hay, oh, my God, what a genius. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was he was a great interview, too. We enjoyed talking to him. Oh, I'll, I'll have to listen to that. Yeah. I haven't, haven't checked that out, yeah. Hey, we don't want to end the uh, the interview without talking about you know your solo project, which is it's a remarkable project, and it's called uh, Buried Secrets, and it includes original oh, pieces. Really? Yeah, it, you re- want to talk about that? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I enjoyed it. Every, I, I enjoyed every track on it. Yeah, it's really good, and it includes you know original pieces by uh, by you and others. You know by Jay Graydon, you know Al Jarreau, Alan Pasqua, Wayne Shorter, and, and Mark Spiro. It's it's a great project. Wow. I didn't think anybody ever heard that. Oh my goodness! Yes, you, you, you know, you you need to know something about the Inside Music Cast audience. They love sort of obscure gems that are just want that are waiting there to be discovered. And this is one that we're well, throwing. Not going to get much more obscure than that record. Oh no, no, no! There's there's a lot yeah. of neat stuff that. Uh, well, is, you know, it was sort of, it sort of 
done a couple of false starts. I've always been so eclectic that after doing a bunch of demos over the years and trying a little bit of this and that, I just kind of went, I don't think that's for me. I, I'm kind of a journeyman, you know, and I mean, I've done a lot of touring with a whole lot of different people, right. as, as I'm sure you know, and you know, I'll go from Bonnie Raitt to Wayne Shorter, and you know, I just go, I'm, I'm not really one guy, so I, at some point I just kind of shelved it, you know, of ever doing it, and then a little while ago, some ideas started to pop up, and I was a little reluctant to, to pursue it, but eventually, I think when I got the idea for the Wayne Shorter thing, the Mascalero, having played it with him, you know, too, was a little bit of a inspiration. That's neat. But um, that kind of got me started to thinking maybe it was something I could do. And um, I called upon um, uh, a couple of my longtime buddies to come in and play bass and drums, which is uh, Kurt Biscara on drums uh-huh. yeah. and uh, Reggie Hamilton. And on bass, and I'm not sure if you know. Do you know who those cats are? No, I, I, I personally didn't. Did you, Rick? No, I, the drummer, yes, but not 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 Reggie. Yeah, yeah. they're definitely a little under the radar. We, I met Reggie when I uh, started playing with Johnny Holiday over in France in the late '90s. Yeah, okay. French and, singer, uh, yeah. That Reggie was the bass player, and Abe Laboreal Jr. was the drummer. Oh, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was when he was just getting going, you know, yeah, yeah. and. Um, we uh, we did about we did several years and some big tours and I love love playing with Reggie. He's a very yeah. versatile cat and covers jazz and funk and all rock and roll yeah. equally well. So um, I asked him to play bass and then Kurt Biscara and I had also toured with Johnny Holiday okay. and I just love the way Kurt he plays. So. That's how I thought of to do it. Um, you know, um, it's nice of you guys to to mention it, and you know, there is some pretty cool playing on it. But absolutely, having, getting it done, and you know, on a on a shoestring, and you know, making it sound as good as possible. I just, well, I don't know if I'm going to take this one on the road or not. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, our, our whole point in bringing it up is good music is good music. And uh, uh-huh. and our uh-huh. listeners are definitely going to be tickled to to get their hands on this right here. You know. Oh, cool! That's very nice of you to uh, to even mention that. I appreciate that, guys. Hey, Tom. Before we go, I just wanted to mention that uh, I recently watched a a video on uh, YouTube, I believe, and it was uh, of you and, and Al. And it was you guys sat down and you were interviewed for the uh, the Fender Road story. Oh yeah, and that's right. uh, that's our good friend Gerald McCauley who produced all of that. And, Absolutely, yeah. yes. That was a really cool piece. That was, was a very nice event. Yeah. Very, very nice. Um, yeah. Um, it, 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 there was nothing planned. You know, we just actually, Gerald put it together when he called me about that. He, he said he was going to, he had Al scheduled to come in. And uh, I didn't know anything about the project until he mentioned it. Yeah. And, oh, okay. um, he said, you know, he's going to be coming in in a few days. And he said, what would you think about, like, us not telling him? And have you just show up? <laughs> How cool! <laughs> and I went. Anything I can do to mess with Al's Giro will be fine. With me. <laughs> we hadn't seen each other for a while. Yeah. Either. You know, not not for any bad reasons, but you know, yeah. we just we hadn't. Right. So Gerald said we're going to have two or three great Fender Rhodes pianos there. If he said it'd be great if you could make sure you had a couple of things that you could play. Maybe you could just do a couple of duo performances, recreate the old days at the blah blah, and yeah. So that's how we did it, you know. Alan rolled in, and um, there I was. So it was uh, it was unplanned and unrehearsed, <laughs> and um, 
a, a lovely event. It's a it fun was, piece. I, I it was beautiful. Yeah, you should. Uh, <laughs> our, all of our listeners should go out and check that out. It's fun to watch. No and, doubt. Yeah, and I, yeah you know, that's a good one. Uh, that's a really good one. And on top of that, I think if you're listening here, definitely check out Gerald McCauley's uh, project, The Fender Road Story. It's it's really uh, a really nice, well done piece. Yeah, it will be. Uh, it, will... it is amazing. He talked to everybody. He did. Literally anybody yeah. that you can imagine, from Quincy Jones to you know Donald Fagan. Everybody weighed into people behind the scenes. Jeff and, Lorber and was in there. It's really quite a labor of love, and uh, yeah. you know, a wonderful statement about you know the impact of that instrument. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've given us a ton of time, and, and we appreciate it. And it was really cool to catch up and hear all these amazing stories. Absolutely, absolutely. I hope I didn't uh, go on too long about stuff, but you know, it's <laughs> Not just. At all. Uh, as the years go marching on, I've just come to really uh, treasure that time. You know, yeah. it was it was a ten year run, and I mean, it's like seven albums in eight years. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't do that now. Right, exactly right. <laughs> you got to be young. <laughs> but it it just it's it's really uh, it's stuff that has stood the test of time, and you know, it's it's uh, wonderful to to meet up with guys like you that. You know, you understand uh, the commitment and uh, and the depth, and you know the all of the the you know the the team that it takes to do something like that. Mm-hmm. You don't just sort of run in and do that. You know, there's there's a lot of talent that's involved and a lot of commitment and vision and everything. And so yeah. I, I feel very fortunate to have been a part of it. And it's like I said, it's great talking to cats like you that you know you know where where all that's coming from. Yeah, well, we feel very fortunate that you've had, uh, we've had a chance to, to chat with you. It's, it's made us smile. So thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate cool. that. Awesome. Great. All right, take care. Okay, guys. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Tom Canning for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Uniland for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.